Welcome back to Project Outsiders. If you're returning, thank you so much for coming back and tuning into our podcast. We really appreciate all of your support and joining us along on our journey to improving the foster care system. For those who are new here, welcome to the Foster Care Experience Podcast. We are a youth-led social organization that is trying to bridge the gap between youth and care with decision makers. We are all youth from care who have been pushed by our experiences to ensure that we see better changes for this disconnected system. We are all incredibly passionate advocates and activists, and we want to create paths and opportunities for other youth in care. Today, we are going to be talking about education. In Western societies, you would think that everybody has equal access or accessibility to education. And for youth and care, that's not always the case. And it's for this reason. If you can take into consideration a lot of the barriers and lack of accessibility youth and care are forced to face, including moving around from schools and not having access to internet and computers at times, would you still consider that equal access? And a really big indicator of accessibility to education can be seen just in the fact that over 60% of the youth who actually are in the foster care system drop out of high school. That's a really clear indicator that youth actually struggle a lot more to be able to succeed in the education system. And so we really want to go into that a lot more. What are some of the difficulties? What are some of the barriers that we have to face? Why is it challenging? What, like, why is this statistic a thing. Like, how did it come to that, essentially? And so today, I have a very special guest with me, incredible human being. Um, her name is Christina Locke, and she's going to really help me uh, speak on this issue. Christina is a student at the University of Toronto, studying computer science, and has a diaspora and transitional studies at a UX designer working for Peel Halton Children's Day Society, Youth Success Team, and Youth Council. She is devoted to utilizing her education and lived experience within the child welfare system to bluster marginalized groups and to bridge gaps within industries, technology, social impact, and humanitarian causes. She hopes to continue to advocate for such groups and empower grassroots and global organizations within missions like this. And so thank you so much, Christina, for joining us. Thank you so much, Shanice, and the whole Project Outsiders team for having me. I'm super excited to mm -hmm. talk about the foster care experience and education. <laughs> yeah, I do. Like, I always like to give a little bit of stories of how I met these wonderful individuals. It's really crazy because pretty much everybody who's come on here, as you guys know, are powerhouses, incredibly successful and resilient. And we've all gone through stuff in the system and it's like how how did we overcome and then she is another a great example of that you know and so I actually met Christina because she is actually really well known has done a lot of like speaking events in the past and I've seen her at a couple because of 
how incredibly like-minded and ambitious we both are, other individuals saw those similarities and connected us. So I got connected to you through another really strong, I want to say advocate, Greg Wooten is just phenomenal. <laughs> and he's actually connected me to a lot of other youth here. And so he's amazing. I would love to know more about your experience in the welfare system. First of all, when were you first like brought into care? Oh man, we're going way back. <laughs> okay, uh, well, mm -hmm. yeah, so I was in and out of foster care from a really young age. I would say maybe like two or three years old. I still haven't requested my file since I aged out of care, so I'm not entirely sure, but I know I was in and out of foster care from the before the age of eight. And then I usually say that by that age of eight, I never went back to my parents and never went back to my family. So yeah, it's been a long time. It's been like most of my life, which is pretty insane. So for you, like how many times have you like moved like in the welfare system? Like, cause we hear all these different stories that youth in care, you know, one of the things that really do separates the successful stories from the a lot more unsuccessful stories is that stream of lack of inconsistency and almost like um, structure and constant having to adjust to new atmospheres. And so did you experience that at all? I would say it's the moving in combination with also like respite homes, things like that, just like constantly being moved around. And it's so crazy because this morning my roommates were talking about that type of concept of just like being kind of tolerant or just giving people a lot of chances and they were like oh ask Chris because she's like she gives people a thousand chances before you know she's just super understanding she's they were like why are you like that and it really made me reflect and I was like well I had to move from so many different homes and I was just constantly feeling like I could be I guess disposable and so I combated that and I feel like a lot of youths in care do that and they combat it by being of use. Yeah. Um, it can go either way but for me I was just trying to be obedient, I was trying to be good, I was trying to find that love and stability and I was doing that through trying to be valuable and super understanding and I feel like that really honed in that whole experience and I guess demeanor for me of just being super understanding of everybody. So I just tried to do that with every single home that I went into. I tried to connect with the foster parents and just be like, look at me, like I'm not a bad kid. I'm not this. Yeah. And I feel like you could relate to this feeling of like when you go into a new home and then they lay down their ground rules and they're like, no smoking outside, come home by this time, do this, or I'm going to call the police. And I'm just like eight years old and I'm like, oh shoot, like, <laughs> you know? So, but I guess it's a thing and they had to do that, I guess, out of rules or at the time I, I didn't really understand it and I was afraid and I was just thinking, I need to prove to them that I'm not a bad kid. Yeah. And that's like, that is really powerful because I felt like I was like the same way heavily in care. It's just, I'm constantly having to prove myself. But like, that's really interesting because like you, because you were put into care at, like, I guess like you would declare officially at around eight years old. It's like you pretty much went through like the most critical stages of like development and maturation while in care. And, you know, a big part of that is the education piece. Like, how do you feel like being the foster care system affected your relationship with school and education? Mm -hmm, for sure. It's 
so crazy because, um, yeah, I was kind of just always the new girl <laughs> in school. And that really shapes your experience and your perspective on yourself as well. It kind of really strips your confidence and just, there's so many layers of identity and um, it's not just kind of like understanding your cultural identity once you kind of are removed from your bloodline or your your biological family. Um, But then it also goes in another way when you're placed from different schools and different homes and um, it's kind of like, you just feel silenced and trying to find that component as well of your voice is another part of identity that I think a lot of people don't even really think about. But when you silence a group that has really big impacts, you know, on how a child would view themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like you mentioned that you were always like the new girl in school, like did that affect like your ability to actually like focus in the classroom and form? Cause for me, what really helped me along my journey in school specifically, especially in high school, is like I really tried to form bonds with like certain teachers that were able to support me because like I was really kind of like tough on myself to try and get a good education because I didn't want my adversities and hardship to define the rest of my life. I wanted to give myself an opportunity to have academic success and constantly moving to new schools. It's just like, you're gonna have to repeat your story over and over again to new people. And it's just like frustrating. Like, how did you manage with that? I don't know, yeah. No, yeah, for sure. Like when you're kind of coming into a new setting over and over again, it kind of is, um, yeah, it's scary. You feel really shy and it just constantly reaffirming that nobody understands you. And I feel like that's something that I'm still to this day battling is like just in so many different spaces that I walk into I don't feel understood um there's just so many things going on and um just to kind of like share this story because my sister actually my older sister is a huge inspiration for me and she's the reason why (laughs) to be honest I'm like here today she was telling me about her experience so we were split up a number of times and when I when she was about 14 or so she actually or maybe he was 15 she wor- did a lot of work with the system and she somehow was able to convince her worker to let her go on to permanency or independence early and so she was putting herself through high school and working so many jobs and just trying to do so many things. And we can also probably all relate to that feeling of just like, or not even feeling, but the need to also take care of our biological parents. Yeah. Like people don't, I feel like in the system, they don't recognize that whatsoever, that we're not just taking care of ourselves. We take care of so many people, um, whether it's family or even friends in like the community. And that's because we're so compassionate and we understand what it feels like. There's a lot of ties there that we, it's not easy to let go of. And she was always, my parents are Vietnam refugees and you know, their English isn't great. There's so many things that are kind of stacked up against them, including their mental health. And so for her and now for me as well, like we're trying to combat that piece of being, you know, their parent, being their translator, just doing so many things, like doing the most, even still, to be honest, I pay my parents' rent, I pay for their food, Um, there are sometimes, and it's really tough because a lot of people don't recognize that you can have so many things going on, and um, I had lots of incidents where, you know, you know, bless my mom, but she has mental health issues, and um, there was an incident where my sister 
So there's such a long story, but my sister, um, when she was 19, she became a king care parent and she took my younger brother and I in to take us out of that situation because she didn't like where we were living at the time with that foster family. Yeah. And, you know, she's just a superhero, <laughs> like uh, getting us a place, getting us a car, you know, and like connecting the wow. family again. Um, but then she went away one day and she let me kind of, I was in high school, you know, I was old enough. I was pretty mature and I did really well in school. So then she was like, um, you can stay home alone while I go on this trip. But then my mom came over and she ended up like stealing a copy of like the keys to the house and just like all these things. And I had a presentation for school once in high school and I was just freaking out and I came late. I almost missed my presentation and I was just really upset. And my teacher was like, Hey, like, what's up? Like, are you okay? And my sister had that same experience too, where her high school teacher was noticing that she wasn't herself in school. She wasn't performing the way that she normally does. Like it's not her full potential. And they would ask us, you know, like what's going on. And then I opened up to them and I let them know like, hey, like, I'm sorry, this thing happened. And I just, you just don't even know how to explain it because mm-hmm. you feel like no one's going to believe you because it's yeah. not a movie, <laughs> which a lot of the times I feel like my life is a movie, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> See? <Right? laughs> Yeah, it just doesn't feel real. Like, who does this happen to, to be honest? It, but it also builds a lot of characters, so. <laughs> it does. It's unbelievable. It's just, and it's kind of like, despite all the craziness that happens to the both of us, we're still, you're still able to go out of your way and be such an incredible, loving person to even the people who might have, like, done you wrong in the past, right? We're rare people, you know? Uh, Foster kids are so incredibly resilient, especially, like, the survivors who are able to take that trauma and not let it define their character, right, and turn into a bad person, even if other bad people have done things to them. And I respect that so much of you, so much. Like, wow, that is unbelievable. And on top of that, like, you have been able to achieve incredible post-secondary success. So, and it's like, for me, a lot of the youth who have also still come on here and who's achieving or trying to get their post-secondary degree or um, higher education, it's tough, you know? Barely anybody actually, first of all, graduate from you know high school who's from care but also let alone like you know go to post-secondary like how did you manage to almost like leave that past not leave it behind you but not let it affect you while in post-secondary and can you know continue to focus on your schooling yeah um that's a whole thing in itself isn't it like I think it sounds pretty crazy, but it was pretty difficult. I think when you kind of grow up in care and you have to constantly go through this and it's like that whole idea of just making do with what you have and just stretching mm-hmm. and like making the most out of what you have. Mm-hmm. And so we're constantly kind of pivoting, stretching, like we just, we adapt, like I'm freaking Play-Doh, you know, <laughs> like yeah. it's like you just kind of conform to whatever situation that you're put into um when it's that time I guess it's a part of yeah survival it was not easy again just to have something like your biological family who might be a hindrance on your life and um I remember this one instance where I had exam time and I think it was in first year and my mom somehow she like this always happens but she actually was 
put into jail <laughs> at the time and a whole thing happened she was apparently framed for something it was she was like you know in she was in like she was pent up she was detained she had to sleep overnight and my sister and I were just kind of like so stressed out I had exams we had to pay for her for her bail yeah um, you know everything wow. even though like that's something that I'm kind of trying to combat because I'm in a UX uh, a user experience design boot camp right now which is a boot camp <laughs> yeah and working and then also volunteering for so many organizations yeah it happened again recently <laughs> where she had a similar situation with the police um, that happened. And I'm currently trying to figure out how to find her a lawyer, filing different things. And people just, you would never know. You would never know. No, you would have no idea that, you know, somebody could be dealing and juggling so many things. Yeah. And yeah, not gonna lie, it's been really tough. And I think something that has made a world of a difference is honestly you it's very easy to isolate yourself because you feel so alone especially when you have so many things going on when you're trying to study work afford your education take care of people Um, but for me it wasn't always like this but eventually I was able to find my core group and my circle and just people who I felt like I could really resonate and vibe with and even though they didn't quite have the same experience as me who um, grew up in foster care I, they had other things that were going on, could relate to like a refugee experience or, you know, abusive parents. And so being able to just connect on a human level with somebody has been a huge lesson that I've learned throughout my post-secondary education and trying to combat my mental health. That kind of, honestly, university really kick-started that whole mental health journey for me because in second year, I was trying to transition from studying humanities into Um, studying computer science and STEM and that was something that I never had growing up. I never had really access to technology, um, Mm -hmm. very limited and actually going into university I didn't even have a computer. (laughs) The thing that I was using for school was literally a flea market like handed down iPad and then I bought a keyboard that could be attached to it so that I could take notes. When I went off to university I realized like oh wow I was exposed to so many different people, people in engineering. I had no idea what engineering was. (laughs) This is amazing you're like a freaking superhero like you're a magician. Um, Engineering, computer science, you know, whole of STEM. And so then I became very interested in it. And I started to start to learn how to code on my iPad. (laughs) Um, And then that's where it all started. But it wasn't easy. And so that's when my mental health really took a toll. And then I also want to mention, it wasn't just school, but knowing that I was turning 21, like as soon as I turned 18 and I went on my own, I was like, the time was ticking in my head. I was freaking the frick out. Uh, I was like, I'm going to turn 21. Like every birthday was like not a good birthday. But there's always commonalities between every youth and care story. And especially those who achieve like or go on to post-secondary. I noticed that very similar to you, um, I really started to heal and recover from my trauma in post-secondary. Like I spoke to counselors and, you know, psychiatrists, and I really primarily used the university to help with my recovery and I probably didn't focus as much on my education because it was difficult too but like it's like it's 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 still hard and this is probably like a teaching moment like I want to know how you are currently doing it like what do you use to help kind of like cope because you even though like you're 
you are incredibly resilient and successful. You're still juggling with a lot. Like, how do you find like that safe space to be able to regenerate and, you know, regain back energy? That's such an important lesson. I feel like all of us kind of seem to have to come on to by ourselves on our own. Yeah. You kind of just fall into it and it can either, you know, make or break you. To yeah. Play. Yeah, at that time, it was the same thing I went through. I was just realizing, shoot, like, I should probably go to therapy. This is not normal. Like, that's when I found out that I had complex PTSD. Um, thanks, the system, for that. Right? Joking. <laughs> I mean, a, fact, a multitude of factors. But I think along that journey, I mean, we're all still on it. And it's going to take a long time. It's going to take... I think, yeah, the first thing to recognize is that it's not going to happen overnight. You're mm -hmm. not going to, you know, go to heal. a couple of therapy sessions yeah. and heal all, you know, in a couple of weeks or whatsoever. It's going to take years of kind of undoing and reparenting yourself. Yes. And uh, I think the way that I cope is, again, just kind of taking a moment to recognize, again, what is kind of in your control and what isn't. Um, and I think I've just had to, I'm still doing this, but learning how to reprogram yourself into thinking that it's not your fault. Because <laughs> guilt is something that I think all of us, we always say like, you just feel bad. You yeah. just feel guilty all the time for everything. And it's like, I don't know why I just feel guilty. I feel like it's my fault. I, And I think a part of it definitely for some reason, this is a commonality as well, but growing up in care, a lot of foster parents kind of do a thing where they kind of guilt trip the kids into thinking that they owe them or they did something wrong or I'm doing you a favor. Yes, that is so true. Or else like you're going to turn into your parents. Like that's something that I kept hearing. Yeah, that's one thing that's so crazy because I actually had foster parents do that, especially those who have their own biological kid. It's almost like you are in my home. I don't need to treat you as one of my own. I'm just here to almost like give you a blessing, right? And like, although, yeah, it's, we should be grateful that there's even any kind of solution or exit to any kind of traumatic situations we were in before it's just like that entitlement it was i don't know it was really upsetting and for me i feel like it definitely is that piece of trying to let go of that guilt and that's something that i was working on um, through therapy with my therapist um, for the past year is just realizing that you were just a child and you had no control necessarily over what was happening. You didn't ask to be born, <laughs> yeah. ask to be put into foster care. You didn't ask for any of these things. And so why are you feeling indebted to so many people? Yes. That is, wow. That was powerful. I love that. And that is a good way to put it. It's almost like you feel like you have a debt to the agencies and to the, especially to the foster parents, and, but we have nothing to give, you know? And so I, I, I felt that heavily. And I think that's one of the things that weighs on us way after care is that like, we are undeserving of the things that we have. And it's just, I don't know, there's a heavy guilt attached to that. And so I see, I agree. I agree with that heavily. 
there, I know that there's like a lot of work currently trying to be done between the agencies and within like um, the education sector. And so like what word of advice would you give to almost like the schools, to the school board and to teachers to better work with the agency or maybe with work with the youth themselves to ensure their success? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something that's so huge for me. I have this story that really, or just like this whole memory that plays into my mind a lot that happened in high school. And I was put into this special program at school called Specialist High Skills Major. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my school was, uh, their, our subject was um, social justice and equity which is right up my alley. <laughs> but um, I had some paperwork or something that I needed to finish. And I just honestly, I was juggling a lot. And so I, I guess it slipped my mind. But then they reminded us like right when we were going to graduate high school that we needed to submit this paperwork. And I was freaking out because I was like, oh my gosh, okay. And I quickly got it done. And then I brought it to the teacher. And then she was really mad at me. She was so upset. She was like, why didn't you say something sooner? Why didn't you ask me like this and that? and then she brought me into another office and she just was very aggressive and she said Christina didn't advocate for herself and wow really stuck with me because I was like are you kidding me my entire life I've had to advocate for myself and others yeah it's something that I think a lot of um, school boards should take into consideration is, um, I guess, maybe having more sensitivity and understanding and training around, you know, what it might be like to have kids who are going from different homes. And again, another piece of advice that I've heard was, as a kid, our survival purposes, attach yourself to one person, like a guidance counselor or the principal. They were saying to do that. And that's something that I kind of tried to do because it well, they will know that something is up and they will know if you're unsafe, if you're not being yourself. But it's just kind of sad that we have to do that. Yeah. (laughs) It's sad that to the very, you know, end, like, I feel like I have to keep advocating for myself and have to keep proving that I deserve education, that I deserve to be here. I deserve a fair chance to, you know, submit my work or graduate high school. Okay, so here's the thing. And I agree. That was actually a question that, um, has been brought in up um, uh, before to me. So currently, um, you know Connor Lowe's, because you've worked with him before. Connor Lowe's has actually been on the podcast before. He was our very first episode. He had invited me to this research project that's being done by a student from York University in regards to education. And so, like, a lot of the questions, like, I, I personally had very similar answers to yours, too. And this idea that we need to have a centralized support individual assigned to maybe a youth to best advocate for them in in school. So they're able to tell their teachers why, oh, hey, this individual needs more time on assignments, or hey, can you like um, ease off of uh, this youth and not necessarily go into details into what their situation is. Do you think it's important? That, and that's my question. Do you think it's important that the school or the teachers know that you're a foster kid or should they just be, you know, accommodating or passionate or, um, yeah. Would you want them to know about your history? I think 
That's an amazing idea. And actually, I have a lot of friends who went to uh, like alternative schools and like special schools. And they had a TA who was assigned to them. And I now what I hear about that, I was like, wow, I wish I had that, like somebody to kind of advocate for me, you know, it just is an extra support. And so I love that idea. And why is it a not normal like why hasn't it been normalized and why is that considered something that is for a special school or you know school again that's something that I'm really passionate about is access to education and I constantly am just thinking why do I have access to all of this history of knowledge this whole library you know why do I get to learn but then other people don't you know Mm -hmm. other what was it 50 over 50 percent or whatever of kids who don't graduate high school or the three percent that um don't graduate post-secondary education why is it that you know the threshold is is as such why do you think so why do you think the threshold is so incredibly significant and large so one of my roommates she's actually was a don for the university of toronto uh down here and she was doing training and she was telling me they had statistics on the board of the had um students of color and then white students. And the students of color, literally half of them, by the time of expected graduation, it split in half. Half of them did not graduate. And then for the white students, it was majority of them. I think it was like 80 or 90% graduated. And so when we look at statistics like that, we have to really ask why is that okay? And why Mm -hmm. isn't anybody really looking into this? Yeah. Because there's so many other factors that are out there and it's not even just to do with mental health and finances, but it's, it's like the whole multitude of things that is like you're, you're parenting yourself and so many other people mm-hmm. and there's past things that you haven't worked with, worked through. And when you're coming out of care, that's when you're expected to kind of work through all, the, yeah. all of these things on your own. And you weren't really given that, those tools to begin with. Mm-hmm. So I, I agree. I know. Here's the thing. Um, I know that, you know, obviously the dropout rates and everything like that is really low, but there has been some studies done, and I'm not sure. Do, do you know uh, who Jane Korvkova is? Yes, for sure. Yeah, I've read a couple of articles about her and the work that she's been doing. So Yeah, and so she has been heavy, like, trying to work on that as of recently, especially trying to work on post-secondary education with the tuition waivers. She had this brilliant idea of instead of having the idea of free tuition for uh, crown awards to be in the hands of the government, and then obviously it changed with part- parties, it should be done through the post-secondary institutions. And so she's been working or trying to go into each and every post-secondary institution to initiate these tuition waivers. And so, so far, uh, Western universities on board, Laurentian, and hopefully McMaster. You know, if, Mac, if anybody at Mac is listening, make sure that you go to the dean. You like? <laughs> yes. UFT as well. But like, I feel like, I don't know. They I, like they feel like UFT is probably going to take a lot longer to be on board because they haven't showed any interest. It, it's something that really that it's it's not really complicated to do. They have the funds to do so. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of really trying to push um, for the, the implementation of this new kind of narrative and really providing these opportunities for youth in care. And I think, you know, education, and one thing her argument was is that for youth in care who age out of the system, 
the one the, the biggest indicator of successful age outs or uh, between those who are unsuccessful is that education or post-secondary education success and so that's why she's so heavy on pushing towards that but here's the thing also there should be no limitations right because you know as you were mentioning once we age out we're dealing with so much trauma we're trying to recover and so if we're put underneath a strict timeline you know you're not really giving youth or kids in care the space to actually succeed and that's why they're not and so you have to be a lot more lenient in understanding and allow people the time and space to work at their own pace. So that's kind of the thing, which I haven't really spoken about, to be honest, because it's, I guess it was kind of embarrassing for me and like a, a stigma for myself is um, when I was switching into computer science, to be honest, my grades just drastic. Oh yeah. You know, it was so difficult. And um I later honestly was really it was really hard to kind of keep myself in school yeah um, with what I was going through not just mentally but in life and everything and so I decided to I couldn't really afford so then I wasn't able to apply for OSAP um, Mm -hmm. that second time around Mm -hmm. and I just felt like the world was crashing down I was like give me a chance you know because the thing is like all of us we are so smart. We're yeah. actually so smart, resilient. Like there's so many things that just amaze me with youths who come from care. So then I decided I need to just work and save up so that, and like give myself a break so that I can afford to go back to school. Mm-hmm. And um, I, this is the second semester of my break, but then I, I decided like, I actually really want to become like a UX designer. And there was mm-hmm. this whole boot camp and everything that I wanted to go through. And if I went through it, I would have all the necessary qualifications and education to break into this field. And, you know, that's the whole thing that I've been trying to do. And all of us are trying to do is just end that cycle of poverty. And so I felt like, okay, as soon as I do this path, like I'll be able to do it. But then I couldn't, I got through everything. Like I went through like three rounds or whatever of interviews. I did like an assignment. I passed. And then the only thing that was holding me back was not being able to afford the boot camp. Not Christina, you are a powerhouse. You are, this is what I adore about you. You are so real. Like, you know, when it comes to a lot of the success stories of youth and care, like those who are in positions like you and me who are seen as such incredibly strong, it seems like we're not allowed to fail. And the fact that you're able to actually feel comfortable admitting that, you know what, my path wasn't smooth, right? I have to take breaks. I have to figure out different ways. Like you are being, you're going to actually help out, first of all, me, because it's really hard for me to admit to like, you know, my own failures because you want to uphold this reputation of just perfection, but it's not realistic because nobody is perfect. And so like, that is incredible that you're really able to be so incredibly raw with us, like with me and um, be able to share your truth because at the end of the day, the fact that, you know, you are still pushing every single day, despite every single challenge and obstacle that crosses your path, it shows you are such a fighter. You are going to be so incredibly just like at peace. Whatever you want, you're going to have it because you have the capabilities and you have the mentality. Thank you for being so raw and so real with me. Oh my God. 
I used to be really embarrassed about talking about coming from care and everything, but then I realized that it's, it's more of a disservice to everyone to not talk about it and to not be open and raw and real because that's what it is. Like, this is how life actually is for a lot of people. I actually, that you mentioned that it was kind of crazy because um, I had foster parents and even family who thought for some reason I had a learning disability and they were trying to convince me growing up that I was slow. And so they wanted me to take tests and stuff like that so that I could get money out of it. And for so long, it wasn't probably until maybe like last year, literally, that I realized like you're not what you tell yourself in your head that you are. You're not an idiot. Like you are actually really smart and you're, you are capable. But that's something that, again, like I had to work through so much is because I kept thinking like there's something wrong with me. I'm slow back into kind of like that experience as well of just again, access to education. In order to uh, afford the boot camp, I was just trying to think of who I could ask to be a co-signer for my um, loan, student loan of credit. Mm-hmm. I was just trying to do all the research that I could. I was just like so upset because I was like, I just want this so badly, but I don't have anybody who can co-sign for me. And that's something else that, you know, we go through a lot, like whether we're trying to find a place um, or whatever. I like my younger brother was asking me to be his co-signer and they were saying I wasn't making enough money so I couldn't co-sign him to get a place. And that happens among so many different fields, not just education, but within housing and just so many areas of access. And um, anyway, so then I reached out to a mentor and it was really embarrassing for me because I, I work with her. Um, I'm like the youngest person there. Yeah, I work with her at Children's Aid and she said to me, Christina, don't worry, I have your back. I just broke down. Like, I didn't even know that I needed to hear that that badly, that somebody had my back. One thing that I really want to hone in, and, and that whole message is, you know, that sense of community and mentorship is so important for, you know, kids coming from child welfare, or even for any child, so let alone, like, our community. So. And that is so true. There's so many commonalities between each episode that you hear constantly. And that mentorship that you just mentioned was something that we've heard just in a previous episode that we were filming because it's so true. And and, and the thing is, is that, you know, there are programs out there that has like mentorships and so on. Um, Either needs more funding or it needs more focus on it because it's necessary. We need it. We just need somebody who has the ability to make that program successful for the youth, Mm -hmm. right? And I think the biggest thing is that consistency is lacking in a lot of these programs, is that commitment and that stability. Um, Because you can't just have a mentor. You can't just have a teacher. A mentor is somebody who you actually have almost like a relationship or a bond with. And they are essentially, you see yourself in your mentor. You see where you want to be. And they are helping you guide guide you to where you need to go. And I think that's really important, even for just like academic success, right? And so for me, I think I, that's something that I personally, I think I would need for to really help myself finish post-secondary. Did you, do you currently have a mentor? Um, I do. So that's more of a recent thing that, again, you you have to find it on your own. Like, no one's going to just hand it to you. And so I, 
again, you also find people as well who kind of you just click with and you feel like you can talk to about these things. And I do have a mentor now um, who, like Sandeep, if you're out there, um, I just appreciate you so much, but she really is a huge role model for me. And she's been able to connect me to more people within my relevant fields. Again, while I'm trying to bridge gaps between social impact, but then also tech and that whole industry, which I feel like we don't have access to as kids from care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So here's the thing that like, I also kind of noticed, it's really vital and I think should definitely be mentioned resources, access to resources. Kids in care actually have minimal access to things like internet and computer. At least, you know, at least when I was in care, I had to go out of my way, especially when I was first put into care. Like um, I would have to travel by bus back and forth from Richmond to uh, Richmond Hill to Markham. And I think it was grade 10 um, to go to school. And then I would stay late after school to use the computer because I wasn't allowed to use the computer at home and or I had to go out of my way to the library and it was so frustrating especially during the winter time I would come home and because we weren't allowed keys to the house I'll be locked out of the house and left there to wait in like negative 20 degrees for at least like 20-40 minutes at times like these things are so incredibly unethical that people don't realize actually is a major reason as to why kids really give up they're constantly just in survival mode and like they don't even have the resources to thrive what is your view on that essentially like did you have proper access to resources while throughout completing your secondary school right so i think across you know the board not even just within post-secondary but just the whole journey within education was really difficult to get access to resources and um to be honest i had foster parents who, yeah, were really kind of mean. <laughs> um, they, we get an, an allowance um, if we do certain chores, but then they weren't giving me my full allowance. <laughs> yeah. They were like giving me $2 a month or something like that. And then it went to like $5 and it was very, very small increments of increase, but I saved that money up and I did all that I could so that I could be able to afford things that other kids had at school, like, you know, the pencil crayons and, you know, just like notebooks and stuff. And so the dollar store was my best friend. I love right. the dollar store. I still do. Like, it's my favorite place ever. <laughs> same, same, you know, I love that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's very sad. It's kind of something else that you kind of have to work through that trauma as well of like, again, just not feeling like you deserve things and just constantly having to penny pinch and save all your money. And so I actually was kind of, because I couldn't afford things that I wanted for, you know, school mostly, because that was my whole life as a, as a child. Um, I when I was, I think, 12 or 13, I got my first job as a babysitter, and I was babysitting for kids that were, like, I had this one family who was our neighbor, and they had four kids under the age of eight, and I was 12 or 13 years old, taking care of all of these kids, getting paid $10 an hour, and that was my first job, so, you know, it's just, like, you have to really hustle hard, and yeah, just, they were, the foster parents were so, to be honest, they were very mean and they wouldn't have like 
basic human things like I had to go through the garage. I wasn't allowed to go through the front door. Um, I wasn't allowed to eat on their actual plates. We had to put our shoes like somewhere else. We were just hidden and I think a lot of people don't recognize that and I don't know why that's allowed. But also to touch on that, my sister, when she went through her King Care parent training, she was telling me about how insane like the training was that it was barely any training and they were just seemingly letting any candidate kind of roll in and become a foster parent and that really makes you wonder why the system is the way it is and I don't know if this is a conspiracy theory or if I should mention this or if I'm allowed to I hope I don't get in trouble but um, you know with all of these people who are now using their voice and platform and education to raise up this space um, and speak out I've learned and just thought of different things and people have told me like if you think about it that they're kind of keeping kids in care is, is lining their pockets, you know? They're mm -hmm. keeping you in care and thinking these things and feeling this, this way because it also helps them. And so it's kind of a really slippery slope. Yeah, and one thing that is very common that a lot of kids in care uh, feel like is a paycheck. You know, actually there was a foster parent who I um, used to uh, live with uh, who actually has told um, some of her youth that like, honestly, like during Christmas or something like that like she said something really offensive like she says that oh you're lucky you're not my child or else I would beat you and stuff like that and saying like you know you're just a paycheck to me like legitimately some foster parents only see you as a source of income for themselves and it's really frustrating because you know we have all of these entitlements to different kind of designated funding for school for hair care products and skin care products for travel for like, you know, clothing allowances and all of these things. And like, we don't even get access to these things. Like a lot of it's being withheld from us. Or it's just like this, they're really upset um, with the idea of like this, uh, or giving us money that we're entitled to, even though they get reimbursed for it. And it's mind boggling. And then people don't, and these are the things that people who are not involved in the system don't see or understand, it's hidden. This is also another thing that is so crazy to me that is such a common story, but I've heard from a young um, girl recently, I just get a lot of youth who kind of reach out to me for help and for advice, but she was being moved from different homes and then her, um, this happened to me as well growing up, but when my sister tried to take me and my younger brother in, um, the foster parents became very upset and very angry and it became pretty toxic. And then she stood in my doorway and told me to give back anything that she's ever bought me. <laughs> like anything that they've ever given me, give it back. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was just surprised to now that I'm out of care and I'm, you know, a little bit older, hearing this, that this is still happening to kids that are currently in care, it just like really breaks my heart. It is. It is. And it's so surprising that like a lot of people get away with these things. Like kids who move out of certain group homes. This was an experience that I heard from another youth at a conference, same experience as me, where she was um, transitioning from one group home to maybe another. And they packed all of her stuff in garbage bags, ruined a bunch of her belongings. The exact same thing happened to me. So many of my things, my belongings have went missing, were damaged. Like <clears throat> in one foster home, in one foster home in particular, they literally used my rags and my towels that was like my own property I brought from a different home to pick up the dog poop. 
that was like the the, the the dogs would use or to you know would poo in the house and stuff like that on a frequent basis and they would use my things to clean it up with and it, things like this is so incredibly unethical that's why kids are upset that's why kids are traumatized because they are so incredibly devalued and mistreated and this is what we're talking this is what we're trying to advocate about and for yeah. <sighs> well garbage bag thingy that's like <laughs> have you had the same thing too I thought I I hear it from so many people that come from care that you know you just didn't have any you know belongings like all of your things were just put into garbage bags and so I think at Children's Aid we started this initiative where people and companies have donated backpacks at least mm -hmm. to kids um, but yeah like because I do a lot of campaign work and whatnot and fundraising work for the organization I got to talk to different community partners and people who are um, trying to help fundraise for the organization and they told me like I didn't even realize like all of these things that are considered basic needs for anybody for a youth a student like you guys don't have access to those and you have to fight tooth and nail to figure out how to get these things for yourself mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so I have a question here for you and, and uh, it, this is related to the the whole education piece here um I feel like a lot of youth uh, really do struggle with school because obviously they're in a position where in, they're in survival mode, right? Um, they're more concerned about their safety and their atmosphere than maybe obviously schoolwork or anything along those lines. But as much as school is important, we have such, you know where I'm going with this, I think, but like we have such a very limited timeline to prepare ourselves for 18 and for 21. That's critical date of independence or not just in, in, independence, abandonment. Let's keep it real, you know? Yeah. And so as much as school is important, a lot of the reasons why we aren't succeeding is because like, first of all, a lot of youth feel like, okay, there's actually... I'm going to have to legitimately find a job and survive aftercare. My, my options really are to really find a job and try and get housing and um, be ready to live on my own. And so and, and, and kids are not prepared for that. They're not. Um, and so they're thrown into that position without even the proper training or preparation, learning how to actually finance or budget, um, learning how to grocery shop, um, learning like you know all of these life skills like cleaning and cooking and like uh, just doing your laundry kids are left with nothing and so it's kind of like is it more important than education should agencies start to focus on that or should there just be a different system yeah I was talking to the my roommates about this as well because we're all kind of young professionals or students and I was talking to them about we were just talking about the concept of getting a PhD and a master's. And I was just saying, like, I don't really feel like I am afforded that opportunity. I don't really feel like, um, yeah, I can afford to go along that path and put myself yeah. into debt so that I can get these, you know, accolades. So I know that the OCAC with Cheyenne and Connor Lowe's, like, they had this whole call for, call to action for um, a restructuring of the system based off of, um, readiness indicators 
Mm-hmm. And um, that was just kind of like mind blowing to me in a sense, because I was like, wow, like why? We probably feel like this all the time, but there's just constant things that kind of come up and we're like, why is this been happening for years? Like, why has this been happening for 20 plus years of, you know, like nobody's fixed or thought of these things? Yeah. I mean, I guess we kind of know why, you know, but like, right. <laughs> uh, it's just, it's ridiculous. And so basically they're ready to based indicators I was actually on that event as well um, or that conference and it's the whole concept of um, allowing kids to have a plan before they age out of care and that's supposed to be subjective it's supposed to be flexible and something that is made with the youth in collaboration with the youth and their social worker to come up with a a net of you know there's so many things that you kind of have to prepare yourself for when now that we know that now but at the time we didn't know that and so it would be so useful to have something like a network that feels like a safety net before you Mm -hmm. age out of care all of these things like understanding yeah how to manage your finances just advice because you know we run ourselves into debt i'm in so much student debt right now you know and then life debt too you know um and it's it's really scary so Mm -hmm. i definitely think that there needs to be a change in the system it's not enough to just um you know shift it from a different perspective it definitely needs to be putting youths at the core and the forefront of the work because that's who you are serving and that's something else that i was told recently too was that I didn't really realize because again I felt in debt to this agency and the people who kind of raised me and took care of me quote-unquote mm-hmm. um, and they were saying like Christina like that's their literal job yes that is their it, one job <laughs> yeah and this is interesting so they I remember we've talked actually a lot about the Cheyenne Ratnams and uh, Conalgo's uh, readiness indicator initiative on this podcast and um i remember having a conversation or a, a presentation with them earlier this week and i brought up the question what is going to happen to those who have already aged out and they have brought up the idea that they're actually giving people the option who've already aged out to come back into care so would you go back into care <laughs> hold up right <laughs> wait, wait, wait a minute <laughs> okay wait what does that mean? I know it, that is a very complex question, but this is actually a pretty important one. And I, I think it comes back to that readiness indicator, depending on what stage of support that you're looking for, whether like if you're in a place where you're literally not standing on your own two feet. So you need legitimate housing and somebody to parent you. So being back under the care of the system or it means just getting financial assistance because you are more independent or still needs to get your your footing in the financial uh, stability world. So would you? So I think there's something really, you know, important about and just so impactful for a youth, a former youth in care's life to be able to have that kind of like quote unquote safety net and feeling safe and taken care of. Yeah. <laughs> um, so to that, I would say that's really important. I recognize that. But as the system and the whole structure of the welfare system stands, I would say probably not. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I've just done so much to create that for myself. 
Yes. But that being said, if it were to change and actually listen to us in the, that restructuring that was mentioned, what's so important is like being able to feel like you actually have autonomy and control over your life and what's going on to you, which we don't, we didn't feel like we had that control growing up. It was felt like it was constantly being taken away from us or just not even existent. Mm-hmm. Um, so as long as, you know, we respect kids <laughs> or former youth in care, then I would consider coming back. Yeah. So this is actually a, a question that I ask um, to everybody who joins on my podcast. Um, and then I want to really give you the floor to send off any messages to youth in care that you feel is necessary, not even just to youth in care, but to whoever you feel like needs to hear this. So that includes, um, it might include social workers or um, uh, even CEOs, the ministry, maybe members of the parliament or um, uh, individuals in the province. Right, it's just like all these tears, oh gosh. What is one thing that you know now that you wish you knew while you were in care? I think what I wish that I knew in care that I know now would probably have to be, you're just capable. Like, mm-hmm. that's the only thing. Like, that's something that I recently learned was that you have every, it's so cheesy, <laughs> but you literally have everything that you ever needed right here. Um, never feel like you need anything more because very little is needed to be happy. Very little is needed to actually be successful. And it, as long as you keep that mindset, you will keep stretching and you will keep um, just adapting because as soon as you feel like you don't have enough, that's when, you know, that sets in where you are kind of like chasing for things um, and not feeling enough. And that just brings you into a whole toxic cycle. Yeah. And, you know, help. that's why we get into toxic relationships and whatnot. Um, but yeah, that would definitely be the one piece of thing that I wish that I knew growing up is that I actually am enough and that I don't need anything. Yeah. Wow. So what is one message? Actually, you pretty much gave your message um, to the youth, but is there anything else that you would want to tell the youth, to the youth workers, to maybe even um, the government? Well, first of all, listen to freaking the Project Outsiders, um, the Foster Care Experience podcast. (laughs) Step number one (laughs) um, is to listen to us and to actually work with us. Um, It's there's a huge difference between having representation and having people at the table versus actually making a difference and working with us um, and finding people who are passionate about this and have something to say. Um, And that's something that, you know, again, with user experience design and that whole background is like, we're constantly trying to tap into that empathy and Mm -hmm. and understanding why people are doing the things that they do. And there's a reason for everything. And so I guess my message would definitely be to, yeah, to just um, listen to us, partner with us. Um, When you bring up one group, it brings up so many other people. Yes across the board for anything and everything it's if one group is down here y'all can't be up here you know everyone has to be brought up to that mm-hmm. same level so yeah. I hope that we can do that absolutely it's like creating maybe not um equality but equity this is a part of um our program or organization as a whole where mm-hmm. the youth in which come onto our podcast we like to give them the uh, the option to really kind of say anything in which they feel like they are in need of support right now, we could help um, really try to even help raise money uh, to help pay off your student loans and debts. 
right? Yeah. <laughs> and um, really give you a space where um, any individual who wants to come and support the youth or uh, obviously support our organization, but most importantly, the youth who come onto our podcast to help alleviate the effects of the foster care system. Uh, we need, we, I, I want to ask you, uh, in your life right now, is there anything in which you feel like you could benefit from or you would need and support with? Whether mm -hmm. it's like school, like uh, in regards to like, you know, um, paying off your student loans, buying you a Tesla or anything like that. I would love, I want to be like the next day of dope break. I'm telling you, Mr. Beast, if I had the money, I would give it so all to the vulnerable populations, not just to like other rich people. <laughs> I really don't understand why there isn't more of that out there, but yeah, I mean, thank you. That's amazing that you do that, first of all. And again, that's really hard to ask for some, like a former youth in care or current youth in care is like, yeah, I know or something. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. But I guess like, yeah, what I realized is I had to be pushed to that point of like really being in need to ever have to be able to ask anybody for something. Yeah. Um, but I'm working on it and um, thank you so much. But I think um, one thing that I think is really important that I hope that we can continue to create is literally just what we're doing right now as a community. Awareness. For, um, current and former youth in care. We need a community. Like that's the only way that this, all of these issues will be solved. And um, I guess to that effect, um, I just ask that, you know, people are the public and everyone is more, you know, willing to kind of help and provide, be compassionate and provide the resources in their network as well, because- And spread their awareness. Yeah, spread the awareness. And um, I think, again, we mentioned so many times that mentorship is a huge aspect for so many areas in a person's life, um, whether it's education or just in life and living. Yeah. Um, so I think if anybody would like to um, mentor you listen oh my god you are so much like kingston kingston pretty much said the exact same thing and when i gave them the option like what would you want like would you want finance or like something financially or whatever you both said almost like mentorship education like knowledge is the thing that will get us out of poverty or this cycle of like adversity or hardship and so i love that but I think that's so true. Like, obviously, finances would be amazing. Like, they would, I would help to solve so many problems. But again, like, we just, we know what hard work gives you. Yeah, <laughs> um, we do. Smart work. So I think it's that whole concept of uplift the plant or whatever. If you talk nice to the plant or you give it all of these things and you nurture it, then it will grow. But yeah. if, you, if you just put money to, into the situation, it's kind of like a finite amount of growth that can happen but then we are able to really grow ourselves and that's yeah. something that I hope to also teach my future children is like being able to because I know I'm gonna I'm gonna be rich like I'm gonna make it okay babe no she sounds so much like me <laughs> I already know so much like me. all right now I'm kind of poor but it's gonna happen okay yeah I'm aiming before 30 yeah. <laughs> Wait, girl, you got it. Like, before then, yeah, like, by 25, you're good. You got six figures, you're good. Christina, I would love you to uh, take the time to really plug in any kind of social media, your LinkedIn, so people could reach out to you, partner with you, collaborate with you. Go ahead. What is all of your uh, socials? 
my friends call me LinkedIn queen, what I'm trying, I don't know. Chris, I think it's linkedin.com slash Christina Locke. And then my Instagram is underscore L-O-C-C. And then also plugging in my youth success team that I work with because we try and provide resources that are relevant to youth currently and formerly in care of the system and provide them with remote resources and access to resources and education. Um, so we try to have an event every month at least so that's what we're doing and we have our networking event coming up soon as well amazing um, exciting and then if anybody needs a website or any digital resources or anything like that <laughs> um, oh yeah she's amazing by the way amazing like um she's actually working on our team right now with project outsiders supporting us yeah. um helping out with social media managing and everything like that so i i totally recommend her <laughs> so please hire her partner her partner up with her collaborate with her she is a boss you are a boss thank mm -hmm. you thank you for coming on 